Hey, it's Holly. Thanks for listening to Pediatrics Now. Today, let's listen in on this fascinating talk during Grand Rounds. Today's presentation, Safe Opioid Prescribing in Pediatrics, has been designated by UT Health Science Center San Antonio for one credit of education in pain management and the prescription of opiates, and that will help you uh, with renewal of your medical license. It's my great pleasure to introduce this uh, morning's uh, great, uh, grand round speaker, Dr. Hema Namunithan, who is assistant professor in the Department of Pediatrics and is a member of the Division of Complex and Palliative Care here at UT Health San Antonio. She completed her medical school training at the University of Missouri, Kansas City in, com in the combined BAMD program. Subsequently, she completed her residency in, at the Children's Hospital, Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City and did her fellowship in hospice and palliative medicine at Kansas University School of Medicine. She currently serves as the medical director for the Pediatric Supportive Care Services and also the director of Pediatric Palliative Care Fellowships. The title for her today's presentation is Safe Opioid Prescribing in Pediatrics. Dr. Navanathan, thank you very much for this presentation. We are looking for your presentation. Thank you. And I'm so appreciative of the opportunity to get to talk with everybody today. Um, I was telling Dr. Kamai it feels particularly special in getting to go after Dr. Marianne Jackson last week, who, while she wasn't the dean at the time, you know, was the dean of where I went to medical school and someone I had the opportunity to learn a whole lot from. Today, we're going to focus on safe opioid prescribing in the pediatric population. And I do need to give a little bit of a disclaimer. I think Dr. Vandermeer may have given um, kind of a similar disclaimer when she gave the same presentation last year. But as we talk about opioid prescribing in the acute pain setting, the population that I primarily tend to care for really is an exception to a lot of the things that we're going to talk about today. Um, as a hospice and palliative medicine doctor, you know, end of life, palliative, cancer, pain, they all tend to be practiced and, and really regulated in different ways. But kind of that being said, I do think it's really important for anyone that prescribes opioids in really any capacity or, you know, just kind of takes care of pediatric patients to have a good understanding of the best ways that we can help keep our community safe. I have no disclosures. So going over the objectives, today we're going to start out by getting a little historical context of where we are and where we've come from in regards with the current opioid crisis. We're gonna talk about what pain actually is and how it's assessed, talk about managing acute pain and safe opioid prescribing, and then finally go over some really important safety strategies that we should be educating our families about. Now, I think we're all more than well aware about the current opioid crisis. And while our current one is probably one of the most you know, pervasive and widespread, this is actually just one of several periods of opioid overuse that have occurred in the history of the U.S. Opioid solutions were actually brought to the U.S. as early as by European settlers. And so they were initially used for, for little things like diarrhea and mild pain. The first opioid epidemic actually really came about with the invention of the hypodermic needle which just kind of happened to coincide with the timing of the American Civil War. During this time, opioids, particularly morphine, were really thought to be a cure-all. And after that, opioids began to become much more widely and frequently used. 
Subsequently, in 1898, Bayer introduced heroin to the market, and it was marketed as a safe, stronger, and cheaper alternative to morphine. Um, we can probably all guess how that went, and more of the negative side effects really began to become much more apparent. From that time on, opioid prescriptions slowly began to de decrease, and then ultimately the Harrison Narcotics Act was passed in 1914, which regulated and taxed the production, importation, and distribution of opiate-containing products. And this really was like the first law to regulate a whole class of drugs. The next big wave of overuse came in the 1970s, and that was primarily with Vietnam War soldiers who had easier access to heroin while at war. It was thought that by 1973, one in five soldiers was a regular heroin user. Recognizing the likely crisis that was going to occur when these soldiers returned home, this period of misuse actually led to the creation of methadone clinics and really changed the perception to one that opioid misuse was a treatable disease. And that kind of leads us to where we are today. Today's current epidemic probably started from a combination of factors. In the 1990s, the concept of pain as the fifth vital sign was introduced, and there was a real push to be very, very aggressive with pain treatment. Joint Commission even began rating physicians on how well that they were treating pain. And at the same time, there were many new opioid medications that were now available and actually being marketed as very safe and non-addictive. Because of that, between 1999 and 2014, the number of opioid prescriptions in the U.S. increased threefold. However, in turn, we began to see those consequences as well. Between 1999 and 2020, there were approximately 564,000 overdose deaths. Over that period, there were kind of several waves of deaths from different opioid types. And the first increase in deaths that was seen was more kind of stemming from that um, increase in opioid prescriptions. These were natural or, or semi-synthetic opioids that were being prescribed most commonly in the community. Next was an increase in heroin-related deaths. And then now we're kind of in that third wave. Um, and the vast majority of deaths we're seeing seem to be stemming from synthetic opioids. I think fentanyl is probably the one that we hear about the most commonly, and it's often in combination with other medications, um, sometimes knowingly, sometimes not. And you know, while that kind of mostly focused on the adult demographic, we know that our children have been, of course, really greatly affected by these epidemics as well. Even in the historical context, after the Civil War, when morphine was really thought to be that cure-all, opiates were being mixed into all sorts of patent medications that were available over the counter. That included for children, um, with probably the most famous being the addition of morphine to Mrs. Winslow's soothing syrup, which was marketed over the counter as helping just calm fussy babies. When infant deaths then started being reported, a connection was finally made, and these deaths actually played a role in the passage of the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906, which prohibited the sale of misbranded or adulterated food and drugs. And that actually like really laid the groundwork for the FDA that we know now. Um, and that's it for the history lesson. Um, now I'm just gonna kind of focus on some of the many impacts of the current epidemic, which in 2017, was declared a public health emergency by the president at the time. 
we know there are you know so many different ways that our pediatric population is affected by the current opioid crisis. And I'm gonna really just focus on a few. I think the one that we think about probably most often is direct poisonings or overdose. And you know that can be intentional misuse or accidental ingestions, which usually happens in kind of that younger population. But outside of those things, you know, we know that our pediatric population feels the effects of their parents or caregivers misuse in many different ways as well. Opioid misuse in pregnancy is associated with a number of problems, including inadequate prenatal care, preterm birth, low birth weight, respiratory depression, um, and of course, neonatal abstinence syndrome. A parent or caregiver's opioid misuse may keep that individual from being able to adequately bond with their child or, you know, just generally even care for their child. There's, a few, of course, a huge financial impact and oftentimes, you know, funds that are being spent on obtaining these medications of misuse may actually come out of family finances that are needed to care for children. And ultimately, you know, children may be separated from a parent or caregiver um, because either that individual is in treatment or they're incarcerated. And unfortunately, a lot of times that individual may have died. Kind of going back to those direct effects of poisoning in pediatrics, between 1999 and 2016, in a period of just 18 years, nearly 9,000 children and adolescents died from opioid poisonings. And that was nearly a threefold increase in the mortality rate from the years prior. And it's important to note that while you know adolescents were the largest population, you know, the largest population, the vast majority of these deaths were thought to be unintentional. And sadly, actually 605 of those deaths occurred from poisonings in children four and under. And you know, while all those were the numbers of, of deaths, you know, as you could expect, the number of hospitalizations increased as well, um, nearly doubling in one study by Kane et al from a similar period from 2004 to 2015. Again, the largest percentage increase happened in our youngest of patients. Um, and the same study found that children were also found to be getting sicker from these poisonings with a larger percentage requiring ICU admissions with intensive life-sustaining measures like mechanical ventilation and vasopressor support. Now, outside of the risk of poisoning and overdose, there was also you know, a worry about wet opioid use, even when taken as prescribed, will mean for future misuse for children and adolescents. Um, this is one thing that we actually probably, hopefully don't need to worry about because at this point, there has been you know, very limited evidence that adolescents who are legitimately prescribed opioids will develop misuse behaviors. I think one of the few, um, you know, few studies that have seen some, some increased risk was, um, was Meech et al. And they use data from the Monitor the Future study, which um, follows about 6,000 high school students into their early 20s. And they found that the increased risk really only occurred in individuals that had previously misused opioids, um, and actually only individuals that had misused opioids in a low-risk way. So if they were already high-risk users or frequent, more experienced drug users, that didn't really change things either. You know, yeah, so kind of with all of this information, it sort of feels like, what are we supposed to do? How do we treat pain? Are we able to, you know, prescribe opioids safely? Um, and how do we do this kind of knowing particularly that pain in the pediatric population is just so notoriously undertreated? 
I will say that there are positives coming, um, you know, in regards to the opioid epidemic, things actually do seem to be improving. The newest data shows that total opioid prescriptions in patients younger than 25 have been slowly decreasing from 2013 onwards. And we are starting to find that some of the state level opioid reduction efforts do seem to be effective with a decrease, decreasing number of opioid exposures across all age groups in the most recent years. You know, but I think really the biggest thing is that it's all about balance. You know, my biggest hope coming out of today's talk is that there's a recognition that when it comes to how we commonly treat pain, there aren't medications that are all good and not medications that are all bad, just medications that might be best for certain patients in certain scenarios, and that includes opioids. You know, we know that opioids have their risks, but, you know, other non-opioid pain medications have risks as well. We know that, you know, acetaminophen ingestions are also increasing. But what I think is most important is that, you know, our patients deserve to have their pain treated. So it's really all about being smart in how we prescribe and how we empower ourselves and our families, um, like I said before, with the information that's needed to help keep our communities safe. And, you know, as we talk about treating pain, I think it's really important that we know exactly what we're treating. There are many different definitions of pain. Um, I think this one from the International Association of the Study of Pain is probably um, one of the best and probably the most respected and widely used. And they describe pain as an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with or resembling that associated with actual or potential tissue damage. And this definition actually dates back to the 1970s. And while I think it's, you know, a good definition in itself, a few years ago, um, they added six additional points that I think really um, just made it into the fully comprehensive definition that is more with the times. You know, the first addition is that pain is a personal experience and it's influenced by a variety of different biological, psychological, and social factors. Um, pain and nociception are different phenomena. So pain doesn't come solely from the activity in sensory neurons. Individuals' concepts of pain are learned through their life experiences, and a person's report of pain should, as an experience should be respected. Um, and while we often think of pain as having an adaptive role, it may still have adverse effects on functioning and general well-being. And in my patient population, this is probably the most important addition, but, you know, verbal description is only one way of expressing pain. And just because something is unable to verbally communicate, it doesn't mean that it's not able to experience pain or that pain is not occurring. Another key point that I really appreciate is the first edition. Um, and that's the acknowledgement that pain is influenced by not only biological, but also psychological and social factors. You know, practicing hospice and palliative medicine, I, I had to add this in, um, but this addition kind of goes hand in hand with the concept of total pain um, that was really recognized and, and taught and popularized by Dame Cicely Saunders, who is the founder of the modern hospice movement. And, you know, part of the reason that I bring this up is just to say that, you know, while this talk is focusing on the treatment of physical pain with primarily pharmacologic treatments, when physical pain is the only thing that we focus on treating, 
we may be missing opportunities to address other treatable pain. And, you know, in the spirit of safe prescribing, that may actually lead us to overprescribe. As physicians, we I think we tend to be really good of, um, you know, increasing a dose if someone's pain is out of control. Um, and that actually might be a little bit more natural to us than calling a chaplain. But sometimes it's those spiritual interventions that are actually going to be the thing that will provide that better total pain control. When we talk about pain, there are two sort of temporal groups that we look at, um, and that's acute pain and chronic pain. Today, when we talk more about opioid prescribing, we're going to be focusing more on the treatment of acute pain. And acute pain is defined as pain that's provoked by a specific disease or injury, serves a useful biologic purpose, and is self-limited. In my practice, what I tend to focus on more is chronic pain, and that's considered more of a disease state. Um, and when it's associated with a specific injury, sort of outlasts that normal expected time of healing. You know, other things to keep in mind about chronic pain is that it serves no biologic purpose and it has no kind of recognizable endpoint. We sort of use that three months or longer um, criteria when diagnosing chronic pain. But, you know, that being said, a, a lot of times you can tell if a patient's pain picture is going to um, kind of change into that more chronic model long before that three-month time period. Um, and, and, you know, I will say that, you know, treating chronic pain is a little bit of a different beast um, than some of the things that we're going to be talking about today, particularly in the pediatric population. Um, and actually, it's probably worthy of many, many different talks on its own. But ideally, when treating chronic pain, it involves care with a full multidisciplinary team to be able to kind of um, touch on treating all of those different total pain components and may require either a palliative doctor or a pain management specialist um, alongside that full multidisciplinary team. Um, when we talk about pain, it can kind of be thought of in um, two stages, and I'm going to keep things very, very basic, um, but first is a more sensory stage. Um, and that's where a noxious stimulus, in the case of this picture being poked by a nail, um, it stimulates nociceptors on the skin. If it's something more internal, it may be um, provoking receptors more internally at the site of injury. But ultimately, um, receptors are activated, and in both cases, the signal travels to the spinal cord and then eventually to the brain. The second part of pain um, is a little bit more of like a cognitive stage. Um, and that's when the brain interprets and experiences the pain sensations as negative or unpleasant experience. We're now going to touch base a little bit on how opioids play a role in this pain process and in the treatment of pain. Again, kind of keeping things really, really basic. Um, there are three classic opioid receptors. The one that's going to be most important for today's talk is the mu opioid receptor or the MOP. Opioid receptors, as you would guess, are kind of primarily primarily located within the CNS, but there's also they're also within the periphery in places like the GI tract. Um, opioid agonists bind to these MOP receptors in the brain, and so we see the benefits of analgesia, but we also see some of the other side effects like sedation, respiratory depression, bradycardia, um, and like I mentioned before, because there are MOP receptors um, throughout the GI tract as well. Um, we will see the GI symptoms that are commonly seen, like nausea and vomiting, um, and reduced gastric motility. 
it's thought that these MLP receptors, primarily the ones in the midbrain, um, stimulate inhibitory pathways that reduce the transmission of nociceptors from the periphery that we had talked about previously with the pain pathway. And importantly, MOP receptors in the ventral tegmental area lead to the production of dopamine, which cause those feelings of pleasure that lead to opioids addictive qualities. You know, understandably, you know, particularly with the state of the epidemic, you know, it's not uncommon for families to be really fearful of opioids. Um, you know, I think that's something that I hear from families a lot um, more in that chronic pain model is, you know, I don't want my child to become addicted. Um, and so it's really important that we know some of these defini definitions and are able to, you know, appropriately talk with our patients and families about what their child's experience may actually be. You know, sometimes what a family is actually seeing is tolerance. And that is a decreasing effect with repeated administration or increased dose requirement to have the same effect. And, and this actually occurs because opioid receptors often become less responsive with repeated stimulation. Withdrawal and dependence tend to go kind of hand in hand. Um, withdrawal is the symptoms that appear when opioids are stopped in a patient that has opioid tolerance. And then dependence is the capacity to experience withdrawal in the event of tapering opioids or the administration of an opioid reversal agent. And this actually occurs because opioid receptor agonists decrease the production of noradrenaline in the brain. Um, and that kind of leads to those common, you know, early side effect profiles that we see, such as, you know, the drowsiness and the slow respirations, sometimes the low blood pressure. Over time, however, um, with repeated opioid exposure, the body is able to kind of overcome this by increasing its own production of noradrenaline. And so then ultimately things kind of return to a somewhat normal level in the body. Then, however, um, when opioids are taken away, the body still has that increased noradrenaline production. And so that's where we see those things like, you know, jitteriness or anxiety, cramping, diarrhea, you know, some of those really common um, withdrawal symptoms that you can expect. Um, addiction, on the other hand, is just a completely separate condition. Um, and it's a condition of compulsive drug seeking. You know, while it may in part be due to somebody not wanting to feel the negative withdrawal effects, it's usually much more multifactorial in origin. And, if, you know, it's important to note, too, that the DSM-5 kind of now lumps everything together under this umbrella term, opioid use disorder. And it uses a list of symptoms to stratify opioid use disorder as either mild, moderate, or severe. Withdrawal intolerance are two symptoms that are present on this list, but are essentially not counted if they're the only symptoms that are present and the opioid is being taken under, you know, appropriately supervised medical care. And so now that we have a good understanding of pain and the role of opioids, um, like I had mentioned before, pain in pediatrics is um, notoriously undertreated. And that's partly because it can be really difficult to identify pain in certain pediatric populations, um, you know, particularly when due to a patient's age or developmental status, they aren't really able to tell us what's going on. But, you know, I think that's where that pain definition really comes into play. The absence of being able to verbally communicate pain doesn't mean that it's not present, and it really is up to us to be able to recognize pain in this particularly vulnerable population. 
Luckily, there are also a variety of assessments and tools that can be help use, um, helpful in identifying pain. And while this is by no means a really comprehensive list, there's a million of them, um, we're gonna go through some of the common ones. And I kind of tend to like thinking about them in three separate groups. For our kids that are at an age or developmental stage where you know they're able to more verbally communicate, self-reporting skills are probably your best option. Um, even children as young as like three years old are able to self-report pain. Um, for our younger kids, we usually tend to use some kind of like face-related scale. For our older children and adolescents, um, you know, the most common is of course going to be a numeric rating scale. So that's the, you know, rate your pain on a scale of zero to 10. Um, one thing that is really important with that numeric rating scale is you do want to actually give that zero or no pain option. Um, alternatively, and like much less commonly used, are visual analog scales. And visual analog scales can be used for a wide variety of things, um, but that does include pain. A visual analog scale typically uses a 10 centimeter line with one end marked as no pain and then the other and marked as the worst pain. And then you have the patient make a mark on that line to kind of rate where on the continuum their pain is. You then convert that to a numeric rating by measuring in centimeters from that no pain end to the mark that the patient makes. Um, these are just some examples of various um, face-related pain scales that we use in our young, tend to use in our younger children. Um, the outro is a really interesting one um, because it actually uses photos of children from a variety of backgrounds. Um, I do admit I don't know how they um, elicited those pictures. I don't know if I actually want to know, um, particularly those 10 out of 10 pains, um, pain levels, but um, probably the Wong Baker and um, the Faces Pain Scale are the two that we most commonly use, and that's just due to like availability and costs. For our patients that are not able to self-report um, due to age or developmental status, behavioral skills are really um, very important tools. Um, in my world, kind of what we use most often is the FLAC scoring tool. And um, kind of as its name implies, it looks at a child's you know, facial expression, leg positioning, cry, consolability, and then provides a score on a scale of 0 to 10. Um, there's also the revised FLAC scale that actually has improved validity in children with neurologic impairment. And so it's one that, you know, I tend to use really frequently um, and is, of course, incredibly helpful in our chronic complex, complex population. The Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario scale is another behavioral pain scale. It's um, particularly used in post-op pain, and it can be used um, for those younger children that may not be able to um, verbally self-report. Um, finally, I just kind of wanted to add this in there, um, is the individualized numeric grading scale. Um, and it's another scale that's actually recently come out of Boston Children's, and it's pretty new. I actually haven't had the opportunity to use it yet, but I will say it seems incredibly helpful. Um, it's been validated for children with neurologic impairment, impairment that we know, you know may have um, differing pain indicators. And so it's just an adaptation of a numeric grading scale, but it asks caregivers to identify a child's typical pain behavior and then has them stratify that behavior on a scale of zero to 10. 
And so it's really cool because parents are then essentially making their own scale specific to their child um, that can then be utilized by the medical team. Um, you know, as you can see, there are um, many different neonatal pain assessment tools. Um, these are all, you know, primarily behavioral as well. The MPAS is one that I see really, really commonly, um, and it looks at both pain and sedation levels. Um, and so it, it's kind of cool because it also looks at different observed criteria like, you know, facial expression or crying irritability, tone. Um, but it also kind of takes into account some more objective data too, like changes in vital signs. We're now going to kind of switch gears a little bit and talk about how we treat pain safely um, and some tips for safe opioid prescribing. Um, we're going to kind of focus on four major topics. Um, but the first and, and, and maybe most important is, you know, as we talked about before, there are no medications that are without their risks. And so, you know, one of the most important aspects in treating acute pain is to maximize all of the non-pharmacologic interventions that you can. One of the easiest and most beneficial interventions is actually distraction. Um, and Frankenstein et al. actually conducted a study to determine the effects of distraction. Um, they utilized functional MRIs in response to cold compresses and found that distractions seemed to help reduce the perception of pain. You know, um, our child life specialists do an amazing job at helping with distraction to help mitigate, you know, procedural pain or pain while inpatient. But this is something that we can educate our families on as well um, and they, that they can utilize in the home setting. You know, it might be having a special new toy um, after an injury or a small operation, or, you know, even just in, uh, a, just a slight increase in screen time um, in the short term. Um, these are all really good options to be able to help families provide distraction at home um, and then ultimately then decrease the pharmacologic needs. Um, other helpful interventions include, um, you know, utilizing heat or ice, um, making sure children are properly positioned, um, helping to teach children and families Breathing techniques is also a great non-pharmacological intervention for pain. Um, when we think about things like, you know, biofeedback and CBT, I think we tend to associate those more with, you know, treatments of, uh, of a chronic pain model. Um, but there actually are some institutions that are starting to use CBT prior to, you know, big planned painful like surgeries or procedures like spinal fusions. Um, and that helps kind of preemptively provide strategies for children to be able to kind of improve their pain experience. Um, multimodal therapy is, you know, another mainstay of acute pain management. And what that really means is just using several different classes of medications at lower doses. Um, you know, we're probably all well aware of the World Health Organization pain ladder. I think now that there's actually a fourth step, which is more interventional methods. Um, but, you know, one thing I always like to mention is that um, the pain letter was actually created in the 1980s as a way of, you know, giving providers across the world, inclusive of providers that had limited resources, a framework for treating cancer pain. Um, over time, however, it's kind of become sort of the standard in which pain is managed. 
That being said, there is some debate about that second step um, or, you know, the treatment of mild to moderate pain. And the idea of labeling opioids as, you know, weak opioids versus strong opioids, you know, when in fact, you know, weak labeled opioids are, you know, just as dangerous and particularly in the, in the pediatric population. But ultimately, what I really wanted to focus on here is that multimodal aspect. And so, you know, noticing that all steps of the ladder include non-opioid medications and adjuvant therapies. When we think about utilizing medication to manage acute pain, an, a really important first step is scheduling non-opioid pain medications. Um, kind of within those categories, you know, we of course have our two big options, which are acetaminophen and NSAIDs. And ideally, as long as the patient doesn't have any contraindications, you want to utilize both when beginning an opioid for acute pain. You know, these medications are really easy to access, of course. Um, they're well studied in pediatric populations. Um, and, you know, when they're being used for acute pain, it's really important to have them scheduled um, because that allows for the non-opioid pain medication to serve as sort of that baseline pain control. And then the opioid can really just be utilized on a PRN or as needed basis. Um, you know, we of course really wanna be very mindful that non-opioid pain medications also do have risks. And so this is not something that we're gonna, you know, of course recommend indefinitely or even for extended periods of time without close follow-up. But, you know, in the several days of you know, after recovering from a small surgery and injury, you know, we don't anticipate that there's going to be that many issues. You know, unlike when they're being used to treat fever, um, there's not really any benefit of staggering NSAIDs in acetaminophen. Um, and there are actually some kind of very limited small pharmacokinetic studies that might show that they may actually work a little bit better when given together. In a study of postoperative pain control by Wang et al., patients on scheduled NSAIDs and or acetaminophen, um, and I actually think it was it was out of England, so it might be paracetamol, but they received 25 to 30 percent less opioids than those in their placebo group. And so that's a really great way to be able to cut back on unnecessary opioid use and actually a big incentive for families to, you know, utilize these medications in a more scheduled manner. Um, if, you know, there is a concern for maybe a neuropathic component to your patient's pain, you could also consider starting a, a different non-opioid medication like gabapentin. Um, you know, its role in treating acute non-neuropathic pain is pretty limited, um, and it does take a little bit of time to titrate up. Um, in terms of other adjuvants, I mean, just thinking about what, if there are other sources of pain that you could be treating alongside of actually treating the pain itself. So if we're, you know, going to be scheduling our non-opioid pain medications around the clock, um, it's definitely very important that we are not using opioid combination medications and making sure that our patients and families are aware of this as well. Um, Acetaminophen is probably, you know, what you're going to see most likely in a combination medication. And, you know, when used incorrectly, that puts our, you know, patients at huge risk for acetaminophen toxicity. Um, while this didn't kind of come from, you know, the pediatric population, 
in 2005, a study by Larson et al. found that 44% of acetaminophen-induced acute liver failure cases were actually um, involving a combination acetaminophen opioid medication. And so this was actually one of the factors that led the FDA to limit the amount of acetaminophen to um, 325 milligrams for these combination products. I think the ones that, you know, the combination products that we see most frequently are um, uh, combinations of hydrocodone and acetaminophen, which are like Vicodin and Lortab and Norco, um, and then oxycodone and acetaminophen um, Percocets. Uh, you know, Tylenol-3 is another, um, or T3, is another combo medicine that we see frequently, which is acetaminophen and codeine. Um, in the past, it was kind of historically given for cough. Um, this is, you know, no longer recommended um, as it was, you know, found to not be beneficial in cough. Um, and then, you know, as I'm sure you're all very well aware, we're going to go over why codeine is not recommended in our pediatric patients in more detail details can appear in a second. You know, moving on to starting an opioid, um, like I said before, if there's one thing that you take out of today, it's, you know, there are no, there are generally no medications or opioids that are all good or all bad, um, maybe coding in the pediatric population. Um, but ultimately, you know, there might be a best choice for a certain patient in a certain situation. One of the kind of big factors that's now being looked into more and more is the genetic component and how that might affect a patient's response or potentially toxicity to an opioid as well. Um, a review of genetics of opioid use disorder by Mistry et al. found that, you know, even up to 30 to 40% of opioid use disorder may be attributed to genetic effects. So like I said, this is kind of something that's, you know, being explored more and more. Um, but the thought is that, you know, a big part of this is that most opioids actually undergo pretty extensive first-pass metabolism in the liver by CYP2D6 or CYP3A4 enzymes. And this here is just, you know, a nice roadmap of opioid metabolism. Um, right now, we're just going to focus on that circled part, which is the metabolism of codeine. So codeine is a prodrug of morphine um, that actually has no analgesic benefit without being converted to morphine. Um, it's converted to morphine by the CYP2D6 enzyme, which has, you know, unfortunately been found to have just a large degree of genetic variation. About 5 to 10% of the population are pro-metabolizers. So that means they have no um, functional alleles. And so basically they're not converting any codeine to morphine and therefore, you know, are little or no um, codeine to morphine and therefore receive, you know, little to no analgesia. Um, the majority of the population are extensive metabolizers, so they do have, you know, normal range of CYP2D6 activity. Um, but unfortunately, you know, as I'm sure you guys are all pretty well aware, a portion of the population are ultra, ultra rapid metabolizers. Um, and so they have two or more functional alleles, and so their body can convert codeine into a large amount of morphine, which of course can be incredibly dangerous. Um, the percentage of ultra metabolizers tends to vary greatly by ethnic group as well. And because of this, you know, really unpredictable metabolism, between 1969 and 2012, there were 10 deaths 
and three overdoses reported in pediatric patients that had received codeine after tonsillectomy and adenoidectomy for treatment of obstructive sleep apnea. This ended up leading the FDA to put out a warning against codeine, cautioning against prescribing it um, to children of any age to treat pain after surgery to remove tonsils or adenoids. This ultimately ended up being kind of further expanded in 2017 um, to say that both codeine and tramadol were contraindicated in treating pain for children um, younger, the age, younger than the age of 12. And then also warning about using these medications in adolescents um, if they had a prior history of obesity, OSA, or you know, severe lung disease. Also, there was um, a warning that nursing mothers were not recommended to breastfeed while they were uh, using codeine or tramadol. Um, and, you know, the addition of tramadol is because um, tramadol use, utilizes the same CYP2D6 enzyme in that same kind of unpredictable manner um, for its metabolism to its active metabolite, which is desmethyltramadol. Kind of going back to that metabolism chart. Um, I actually tend to like this one a little bit better because it shows things in a little bit more of a broken down model. But um, as you can see, morphine and hydromorphone do not actually require that first pass metabolism. And so that can make them a little bit more um, predictable in their use um, because of that, um, you know, morphine and dilaudid or hydromorphone, um, usually morphine tend to be kind of my go-to when I'm starting opioids on patients. You know, one thing that I always like to point out here, too, is kind of going back to that idea of, you know, weak versus strong opioids. Um, you know, I think that many of us feel so much better about prescribing hydrocodone than we do Dilaudid. Um, and, and, and while hydrocodone does have a little bit more of a larger therapeutic range, it is important to note that the active metabolite of hydrocodone is hydromorphone. And so, you know, while prescribing hydrocodone may seem less scary, um, it's ultimately becoming hydromorphone or dilaudid within the body anyway. And I guess I say this, you know, not to make you be afraid again of hydrocodone, but more so just to reiterate that, you know, there are pluses and minuses with all opioids. It just being, you know, cautious and making sure that you're prescribing them safely. Um, looking at the chart, you know, you may also be wondering about um, oxycodone because, of course, that's one that we frequently utilize in pediatrics as well. Um, and it also uses that CYP2D6 enzyme, um, just like tramadol and codeine. Um, but studies have kind of shown that oxycodone, for some reason, does not seem to produce the same amount of active metabolite as codeine or tramadol. So it tends to be a little bit more predictable um, and a little bit safer to use. This is just a chart of some, you know, common um, opioid starting doses. Of course, if a patient is not opioid naive, um, you may have to consider starting um, a higher starting dose based off of what their prior usage was. And um, we'll look at an, an opioid equi-analgesic table here shortly. Uh, you know, on here, I, I do have IV fentanyl on here. Of course, it's, you know, has a pretty, it's pretty short acting um, and is going to be primarily used in the inpatient setting. Um, Kind of related to that, do, you know, I do want to mention that while outside, you know, in the setting of acute pain, it's really unlikely that you're ever going to be using this. But within my population of, you know, cancer palliative patients, we do tend to use transdermal fentanyl or fentanyl patches, um, and they can be a really great option for long-acting pain relief. Um, and we use those frequently on an outpatient basis. Um, 
you know, particularly in our smaller patients or those that are unable to swallow pills, um, sometimes in our older kids that have difficulty taking or remembering to take their medications or taking medications, um, you know, it's pretty uncommon to be to start uh, transdermal fentanyl on an opioid naive patient. Um, you do tend to get a lot of pushback from insurance and pharmacies now, even in the setting of end of life or cancer pain. But it is something that, you know, I've started that lowest um, 12.5 mic per hour patch on patients that were opioid naive before. You know, um, another thing to really be mindful of when choosing which opioid to start on a specific patient is actually just making sure that they have access to it. Um, you know, nowadays we have like meds to beds and our UH discharge pharmacy is, you know, wonderful. So it makes getting medications after an inpatient admission or an ED visit, you know, much easier. But depending on where a patient lives, um, their pharmacy may not have all liquid opioids in stock. Um, or they may not actually have it in a feasible concentration. And one of the things that I want to point out is like, if you look at this image, um, this is a bottle of 20 milligram per ml morphine sulfate solution. And that's actually pretty concentrated for the doses in which we tend to use, particularly on our very little ones. So sometimes it does take pharmacies, um, you know, some time to get in certain liquid formulations or certain um, concentrations. Um, and sometimes pharmacies may not be able to get in an opioid at all. Um, and so making sure that you're aware of what's available at a patient's, you know, regional pharmacy. Um, also, I think just mentioning the concentration, you obviously, you know, if that, that's something that's going to be, you know, checked and checked again by the pharmacy. But that's another thing that we can, you know, make sure to make families aware of. Um, just making sure that the concentration that they receive is matching what was prescribed. And um, so this comes into play more with kind of chronic and cancer pain, but there's also a lot of limitations um, to liquid long-acting opioid medications that are available. And so that's why you may see us in the palliative world, you know, using utilizing a fair amount of methadone or, you know, like I had mentioned before, utilizing things like fentanyl patches. This here is um, an equi-analgesic table. Um, and I will say when I was in my fellowship, our equi-analgesic um, tables were like our gospel. We, uh, they had us make our, made our, make our own on our very first day and we carried it around on a little note card. I actually think I still probably have mine in my work bag somewhere, but you know, we pulled it out and used that for all of our opioid conversions. I ended up actually only including this partial table because um, what we're finding is that we're beginning to learn that equi-analgesic tables are just really a small part of several other important factors when it comes to opioid conversions. An equi-analgesic dose is a dose at which two opioids should provide approximately the same amount of pain relief. So in theory, you know, 10 milligrams of IV morphine should provide the same amount of pain relief as 25 milligrams of PO morphine. Um, which should then also provide about the same amount of pain relief as 20 milligrams of oxycodone. Um, you know, in the acute pain um, setting, it's pretty rare that we're talking about today, you know, um, it's gonna, it's pretty rare that you're going to have to rotate opioids, but one of the ways these charts might be helpful is, you know, if you're preparing for discharge and transitioning a patient from a parenteral to an oral medication, or, you know, even potentially the other way around, if, you know, for some reason, a patient is no longer able to take PO. 
outside of the assistance with conversions, though, I do also like to point out that, you know, kind of going back to the um, hydro hydrocodone hydromorphone piece is we tend to be pretty co comfortable with oxycodone, but kind of afraid of morphine. But when you actually look kind of based off of this chart, five milligrams of, of oxycodone, like that tablet that we're pretty used to prescribing, it's actually the equivalent of 6.25 milligrams of oral morphine. Um, you know, when advising parents on opioid administration at home, out of the, the many different side effects that we've talked about, respiratory depression is obviously going to be the most life-threatening. Fortunately, it's usually precluded by a degree of sedation. And so an important part of, you know, of opioid safety is te teaching our parents safe administration. So not giving them, you know, not giving their child an opioid if their child is uh, overly sedated or, you know, it's just really out of it. Um, it's an important way to help mitigate some of those risks. And I realize I'm running a little short on time, so I'm going to go through some of this stuff pretty quickly. But, you know, another component of safe opioid prescribing is prescribing the right amount. It's thought of that up to 10% of the opioids in the community actually come from pediatric prescriptions. The CDC recommends um, prescribing opioids for three days or less for acute pain. And, and, you know, while that number primarily comes from or comes from the adult recommendations and from primarily adult data, there is more and more evidence that shows that this might actually be a good rule for us to follow in pediatrics as well. Uh, a study by Abu Karam et al. on postoperative morphine use at home showed that for minor procedures, it was really rare for children to need more than five to ten doses of opioids. Um, most actually only needed one to two, and that ended up leaving about meaning that only about 9% of prescribed opioids were being used. Um, a team from Texas Children's um, also found that when opioid prescriptions for fractures and abscesses were given in the ED um, and were limited to three days, there was actually no increase in return visits to the ED for untreated pain. If a patient has undergone a more extensive procedure um, or had a more extensive injury, that, and has a more kind of longer anticipated recovery time. Looking at the number of doses that the child is required in, you know, the 24 hours or the 48 hours prior to discharge is a really good metric to utilize to, you know, prescribe by for the future. And of course, those patients are going to have um, usually pretty close follow-up. It's also to know that um, it's really unlikely that a patient is going to require refills for acute pain. A study by Naira et al. that looked at Medicaid-managed care plan data showed that less than 10% of patients required a 30-day refill for acute pain. And in that kind of under 10% that did, there were usually other factors that led to that need for a refill. They had some kind of underlying chronic pain or um, other issues. And then also kind of during that initial, you know, the duration of the initial prescription did not increase their risk for re repeated prescriptions. So whether that initial prescription was three days or, you know, even greater than 10 days, it didn't matter for, for a refill to be required. And like I mentioned before, you know, in most circumstances for acute pain, opioids only need to be prescribed on an as-needed basis. Um, and, you know, actually, if you're being thoughtful with the amount, you know, uh, being thoughtful with the amount that you're prescribing is mandated. In 2019, um, House Bill 2174 
was passed um, that stated that for acute pain, practitioners may not issue a prescription for an opioid in an amount that exceeds a 10-day supply or provide a refill for an opioid. There was some clarification shortly after this that showed that you know practitioners can provide another prescription if the patient actually is actually seen for follow-up and a need is determined at that time. Again, this doesn't apply to kind of that population that I care for, chronic pain or end-of-life palliative cancer pain. Another part of HP 2174 um, was that all controlled substances would need to be electronically prescribed by the beginning of 2021, which is, of course, something that we do now. Um, and this ties into the creation of prescription monitoring programs, which are electronic databases that track controlled substance prescriptions in the state. And they've actually been found to be one of the most promising state-level interventions that have improved safe opioid prescribing. I think as of now, I think every state has a prescription monitoring program. Missouri was sort of holding out for some reason, but I actually think that they have one hour. There's going to be one starting later this year. In Texas, it's called PMP Aware. Um, and so, like I said before, it gathers all the data for Schedule 2 and 5 medications, 2 through 5 medications, excuse me. Um, and uh, it, this information is updated within the system really quickly. One really important thing to note is that, you know, all prescribing providers are required to check a patient's PMP history prior to prescribing outpatient opioids. And pharmacists must also check, um, check their PMP history prior to dispensing opioids. This does not need to be checked prior to inpatient um, opioid orders. Um, and, and this is just an example of what kind of what pulls up with PMP or where. Um, as you can see, it's, you know, pretty comprehensive. You can see, you know, fill dates, all the individual prescriptions, who the providing provider was, the pharmacy that was filled out, you know, even how they paid for it. Um, they actually even convert the prescribed medications into oral morphine equivalents, which is sort of that standard way of calculating total opioid usage. Like I said, I'm kind of going through this pretty quickly now, but one of the really cool things about um, PMP Aware here in Texas is that it's interconnected with um, a lot of different states. And so you can um, uh, look specifically if a prescription was filled in a different state. That's probably less um, helpful here in San Antonio, but uh, in my previous two lives, I um, practiced in cities that straddled state lines. And so that was actually really important and I wasn't able to do that. You know, other important safety message um, measures are, though, you know, anytime opioids are being prescribed, safe storage is really, really important to talk about. You want to recommend keeping the medication in its original package, um, packaging because, of course, these are not medications that you want to mistake for something else. Um, you also want to make sure that medications are being stored in a secure and safe place. And this is, of course, not just for opioids, but, you know, all medications in general. And that doesn't mean um, just placing them on a high shelf because, you know, that can actually make them more enticing for a little one to climb up to, to, you know, if they see someone taking a medication that might look like candy. I will say um, just briefly, I, I didn't do this. Um, and just a couple of weeks ago, uh, I thought that keeping a medication on my counter was going to be far enough for my dog. And she managed to scale the whole counter and, and, and take a whole bottle of her prescribed NSAID medication. And um, luckily, she's fine, but it could have been a lot worse, and it didn't mean that she was in the hospital for a couple of days. 
you know, other things to consider are lockable medication boxes. Um, we tend to use these for our hospice patients um, when there are concerns for possible diversion in a home, but we know that we have to have medications in the home to be able to get them adequate symptom control. Um, cabinet locks also work in the same way. And, you know, if there is any risk of diversion, you know, if you if a family lives in a really busy household with lots of people in and out, one thing to consider advising families is to keep medications in a more unexpected place. So, you know, everyone expects medications to be in that typical bathroom cabinet, but, you know, maybe instead have them recommend that they keep them in a lockbox in a, you know, much less used closet. Um, so that way, you know, just usually keeping them away from places that people are going to go looking for them. Um, you know, we talked about um, prescribing less medication and storing medication correctly as two really important safety pieces, but safe disposal of unused medications is also incredibly important. In 2019, um, the FDA created the Remove the Risk Toolkit, which has all sorts of information on ways that we can help educate our families on safe medication disposal. Um, there are several options for disposal. Um, but really, particularly with opioids, the most important thing is to try and get them out of the house as quickly as possible. Um, safe medication disposal sites are probably the best option, um, but of course that we know that that's not always feasible for our families. Um, you know, so many people have transportation issues and frankly, it, it does just take a lot of time and effort to seek out a site and get there in a timely manner. Um, most recently, the FDA also created a flush list of common medications that are primarily opioids that are safe to be disposed of by flushing them down the toilet. I think the thought there was that the risk of having them in the home is much higher than the kind of much smaller risk of the small amount that's going to be leached into the environment when flushing. Another option is to advise families to mix extra medication with a substance that people are not going to want to go through, like kitty litter, litter or coffee grounds, um, securing that and then throwing that away. Also, if families are throwing away medication bottles, you want to make sure to advise them that, that they are um, covering the medication names prior to doing that. Um, really quickly, this is just a part of that FDA flush list. As you can see, it contains primarily opioids, but it does have some other medication classes um, that might be at increased risk of abuse or dangerous if um, taken inappropriately. And actually, when you look at that FDA full list, it says, you know, any drug that contains morphine or any drug that contains fentanyl. And so, you know, if a safe disposal site is not an option for a family to remove opioids, it's very likely going to be on the flush list. And so that's the next best thing to be able to recommend to a family. Um, and then this is just that graphic um, that comes from that Reduce the Risk website. Again, so if a family can't get to a drug disposal site and a medication is not on the flush list, this is sort of that next best step to advise families. Um, you know, I think that's something that comes up a lot is what do we do with all of this extra medication? So even if it's not, even if you're not prescribing opioids, being able to let a family know what they can do to get, um, get rid of some of those accumulating medications can be a helpful step. This here is just a map of the safe drug disposal sites in San Antonio. Um, they're primarily primarily located within, you know, CVS and Walgreens pharmacies. Um, 
you know, unfortunately, as you can see, there really aren't a ton of them and they're pretty spread out. And so again, that's why it's nice to be able to give families those other options. And then here are just my takeaway points. It's 8.30, so I won't go through them all, but um, again, just kind of reviewing some of those important things again, with the most important being that it's kind of all about that balance. Um, I think that's all that I have for you guys again, right, right on time at 8.30. I don't know if we have time for questions, but if anybody has anything, I would love to hear it. Yeah, we do have time for questions. Dr. Navanathan, thank you very much for that uh, education session on safe opioid prescribing pediatrics. Uh, Dr. Parman, go ahead and ask your question, please. Oh, hi. Yeah, I was just wondering if there's any evidence for benefit for using gabapentin um, if there's no, if no suspicion of neuropathic pain, just as an adjunct for acute pain. Yeah, there really isn't. I mean, I think there is very limited benefit, particularly for acute pain in general, and then also if there isn't a suspected neuropathic um, component to it. And like I mentioned before, because, you know, we tend to start pretty low because of the sedation risks and it takes a while to titrate up. Um, we would expect by the time we get that real benefit, we're sort of outside of that acute pain time frame anyway. Even for like the burn patients that are going to be in the hospital for quite a while, that's, that's kind of the scenario I'm thinking. So it's like a more of a subacute situation. Yeah, and I, that that's a great point. I think that is kind of a little bit more of a not necessarily chronic pain picture, but it is a little bit more of a, a long term. Um, and so in that situation, because we anticipate that there is actually going to be that neuropathic component, um, it, it, it could potentially be used. Any other question, comments? Yeah, um, this is Dr. Herndon. Yeah, go ahead. Besides, uh, besides the uh, the longer term kind of problems like a burn a burn unit patient or something like that, there are some problems that seem to confound all of the all of the work that we've done on pain control in children so far. And of course, the one I'm thinking of is uh, sickle cell disease which is a horrendous problem uh, that leads to often addiction and uh, opiate-seeking uh, disorders and uh, young adolescents having prescriptions from five different doctors and things like that. Um, and some of the hereditary migraine syndromes, things like that. Um, and I, I still don't know how to, to deal with those things other than tracking. So I'm just just mentioning. I don't know what whether we're gonna ever find super super successful solutions to those problems. No, definitely. And I think you know that's a little bit more kind of outside of the scope of the sort of acute minor injury surgery things that we're talking about today. But yeah. I totally agree that you know uh, tracking has been a really nice advent. It's something that we didn't have access to before. Um, like I mentioned before, it was a problem kind of where I had practiced before um, where we were in two different states. And so we didn't have access to where, you know, there were certain situations where people were filling prescriptions in a pharmacy right across the state line that we didn't have access to. So I do think if nothing else, that will be helpful. Um, and one thing I always add, too, is that that PMP is not supposed to be used to, you know, punish patients. It's something to be used to be able to start a, start a conversation um, if you're noticing that there are issues um, and more just for our own knowledge and being able to safely prescribe moving forward as well.
We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Pediatrics Now. Click on the link for free credit if you're a practitioner. You can also email us with questions or episode ideas. That address is pediatricsnow at uthscsa.edu. We release a new episode every Friday. I'm Holly Waymond. I hope you can join us for our next episode. Thanks for listening.